We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. We're finally out of Luke 2, <clears throat> reaching a new chapter. <clears throat> and we get into the rest of the narrative of the gospel of Luke. We're going to read the first six verses of this text and then dive right in. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. <coughs> now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Euturia and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let us pray. It is a wonderful thing to be able to come into the presence of God, whom, whom we adore and worship even as was just sung. And it is all because our boast is not in ourselves or any inherent goodness within us, but our boast is in Jesus. And so we thank you for this privilege of gathering together as Christians whose boast alone is Jesus Christ and who glory in the cross, knowing that it is there that we find hope and everlasting life. Thank you for giving to us your word, Lord, and even as we look to it, I pray that it would be profitable for us as we prepare to go into another week, and that our souls would feast upon these truths contained within it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Luke is writing a letter, a book, but a gigantic letter, to Theophilus, and Theophilus is at this point trying to understand and wrestle through the significance and implications of what his beliefs are as a Christian, because I believe Theophilus was a young Christian at this time, and he is not entirely certain what he believes. In fact, there's, there are people at this point who are attacking his faith and suggesting that those Christians are believing a, a false reality. There is no such thing as a Jesus risen from the dead, you can go find his grave somewhere, or you could at least go talk to the disciples who probably stole his body from the grave so that they might give the impression that he rose from the dead. But Theophilus, you're believing something that's not true at all. That's a myth. Luke and Paul, probably, were trying to encourage Theophilus, and Luke decided of his own accord to go and give a defense, really, of the belief that he had as a Christian that Jesus is indeed the Son of God risen from the dead. And he wanted to give something for Theophilus to give to others. Hence why 2,000 years later we have this book for ourselves and it is doing the exact same thing for Theophilus today. 
It's giving us a bolstering of our faith, realizing that what we believe is not in vain, what we believe is not myth, but what we believe is in fact true. It happened, just as the disciples said, and just as Jesus Christ himself said it would happen. So what he does over the course of these first two chapters is summon witness after witness to the identity and origins of Jesus Christ. He says there were angels in a field, or angels that were talking to shepherds in a field, and they were proclaiming that there is a Savior born in Bethlehem. He says there, there was a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth who was old and well past childbearing years, and she all of a sudden has a child according to the promise of God, and that this child would prepare the way for the Messiah who would come. All of these are witnesses that Luke is summoning one after the other to show Theophilus that this is, in fact, what happened, and these are, these are the real circumstances surrounding the birth and identity of Jesus. Now we move from the birth narrative, from the narrative of Jesus' young life at the age of 12, which is what we looked at last time, and we fast forward quite a few years. And we are introduced once again to the young man that was prophesied to Zacharias and to Elizabeth. This young man who would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And this is for the first time in Jewish history of the last 400 years, at that time, that a prophet has come. For 400 years, it's not like there hasn't been anything happening in Jewish history. There's been an awful lot happening in Jewish history. But there wasn't anybody coming and saying, thus says the Lord, and in fact it coming out to be true. There were plenty of false Christs who had arisen. There were plenty of dynamic characters in Jewish history who had arisen and zealously fought for God's people. But none of them were the prophet that God had promised would come. Until we get to chapter 3. And somebody who had been in the wilderness preparing himself for his ministry finally emerges. And that person, of course, is John. But why does Luke want John to be a part of this story? Why does he go from Jesus at 12 years old in the temple, talking with the doctors and the Pharisees and scribes and, and interacting with them, asking questions of them, <clears throat> and jump from them to John in the wilderness and giving us historical background and giving us quotations from the Old Testament. Verses 4 through 6 are quotations from Isaiah chapter 40, what we read this morning in the scripture reading. Why does Luke include all this information? It's because, ultimately for two reasons, the first one being the one we're going to look at today. The second one is, is primarily because he's still doing exactly what he's been doing the previous two chapters giving evidence for who Jesus is. And as we'll see momentarily, even the quote from Isaiah chapter 40 is a reference to the identity of who Jesus is. Because this prophet who's preparing the way is preparing the way for someone. And that's the someone that Luke wants us to understand and know. But the first reason that he includes all of this is because, is because he wants Theophilus to understand that John the Baptist, whom probably a lot of people knew about, knew a lot of information about, had heard the story of how he had been beheaded by the king, Herod. They probably understood that he was kind of a strange figure. And they were wondering, how does he fit in this whole Jesus thing? 
And Luke says, all right, Theophilus, let me give you an explanation for why John the Baptist happened. Let me help you understand why John the Baptist was a key figure before we even get to Jesus. In fact, he's going to talk about the fact that John baptized Jesus, and that's an important point, but that'll be for a later message. He's really trying to emphasize the fact that John is the herald. He's the one who's coming before the face of the king, before the face of the Lord, preparing the way for the coming of the king. And he gives us several realities about this prophet that I want us to meditate on this morning. Several realities surrounding the prophet John, who had come after 400 years of prophetic silence from the Lord. And the first reality about this prophet is that the timing of his coming was providential. The timing of his coming was providential. You get to verses 1 and 2, and at least the first part of verse 2, and I think most of us, most of that information means absolutely nothing. Because we don't know, other than maybe Herod and Pontius Pilate, we don't really know anything about the other guys as far as if, if I were to quiz you and say, all right, what do you know about uh, Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene? I would say probably most of us in this room would say we don't know anything about that person. Not that we don't in the history annals, but simply that you and I, as the common person reading our Bibles, might be like, well, I don't really know who that is. But Luke's readers did. This was an important point. Luke is setting about a historical setting that his readers, particularly Theophilus, would know. This is something that, that I think is so important to the gospel of Luke. Luke is a historian. And if you ever read any history books, which I know some people don't enjoy reading history. I actually am the opposite. I love reading history. I love learning about history. If you read the history books, what are those historians doing? They're trying to bring us back into the time so that we can get a glimpse into what happened and what people were like and the events surrounding those people, etc., etc., etc. Luke's doing the exact same thing. He's a historian. He's writing for people who know these names. In fact, many of them lived through those names. They knew those people. It would be as if, as if, if I were writing some kind of book today about something that had happened 30 years ago. And I'm talking about the President of the United States. I'm talking about, I was saying, now this happened during the time of the presidency of Bill Clinton. You would know that name because you, most of us in this room have lived through that name. It's the same case for Luke. These people are not unknown names to Theophilus. He's well aware of them. Who are some of them? Well, we aren't going to get into detail, but I'll just give you the highlights. The first name that's listed there is Tiberius Caesar. And it says that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, now we have a historical setting. And most scholars would suggest that it was around the year 28 or 29 AD that this event about John the Baptist happened. So John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness, emerges preaching around the year 28 or 29 AD, depending on what time of the year it was, etc., etc., and that would have been the 15th year of this Caesar, Tiberius. Another name that is important here is the name Herod. And it says that he was Tetrarch of Galilee. And of course, I mentioned before that Tetrarch means that he's a, a ruler or really over a quarter of the kingdom. It's kind of divided up. Herod is not the Herod from Matthew chapter 2. The Herod from Matthew chapter 2 who killed and slaughtered all of the two-year-old and under children was Herod the Great, an absolutely insane man. This Herod is his son. 
Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is living all throughout the life of John the Baptist and will be eventually be the one who beheads him. Herod Antipas is also the Herod who lives through the life and ministry of Jesus. So this is the Herod of the days of the ministry of Jesus. And then, so, so what Luke is doing here is he's saying this timing is at a very specific time in which John the Baptist come as we talk about his coming preparing the way for the king. It was providential. God had it for a specific time and purpose. And then he goes from like the secular realm, which we won't get into Philip or Licinius. Some of them, Philip we know a little bit about, obviously even because of scripture, Herod ends up getting his wife Herodias, um, stealing her from him basically, and sending his own wife packing. But uh, Licinius, we don't know much about. In fact, the only things we really have are uh, inscriptions of him, but we don't know too much about him particularly. There's some some things we could say, but we'll just continue on now to verse 2, where we move from the political realm of those who were ruling in the day to, verse 2, the religious realm. And we read in verse 2 that while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, so in the year 28, 29 AD, when this event that's, that Luke is recording happened, there are two men mentioned as high priests. Well, what you may not realize, because it doesn't say it in the scriptures here, but the historical records tell us, Annas' high, high priesthood ended at AD 15. So here we are almost 15 years later, and he's still being described as the high priest. But that was because his influence was very great, because guess who Caiaphas is? Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So Annas was a great high priest, and he, he performed his duties, but he had been already technically not the high priest for almost 15 years. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is. But because he was so influential in the life of his son-in-law, most of the people, probably almost tongue-in-cheek, were saying they're both the high priest because he was so influential in the life of Caiaphas. So all of this is the timing surrounding the birth of John. And I would be remiss not to remind us that every single one of us were quoting, if I were to quote from the book of, of Esther, all of us were born for such a time as this. Regardless of what you think about the age in which you live now, regardless of whether or not you could go back to the golden years of whatever age or time you can think of, God has placed you in the season you're in now in the years you're in now, for such a time as this. It is all the working and providence of God. And I think that we as Christians ought to be grateful for the times that we are in. It's really easy for me to look back at certain time periods and say, boy, I really wish I could go back to that. I mean, even within my own lifetime, sometimes I wish I could go back to those innocent years of my childhood where I didn't have to worry about paying bills and things like that. That'd be wonderful, right? us in the time we are in now for such a time as this, and he has a purpose behind it. And the same was true for John and for Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Jesus did not come willy-nilly. God didn't close his divine eyes, look at a calendar, drop his finger on a spot and say, all right, yeah, we'll send him that day. Everything that happens here happened according to the sovereign will and decree of God. 
And nothing that God does is wrong. Nothing that, that God does is unwise. Everything that God does has filled within it purpose and goodness, especially for those of us who are his children. So the timing for John was providential, but frankly, you could say that about anybody. You could say that about your life. The timing of your life is equally as providential, that God has placed you where you are in the time that you're in, providentially. What other realities do we learn about this prophet? Well, number two, not only do we learn that his, the timing surrounding his coming was providential in, in the working of God, but number two, his ministry specifically was to prepare. In verse two, we read a significant phrase here that I don't want us to gloss over, that while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came. 400 years of silence. Imagine that you are a Jew who has been longing to hear from God. You read every time you go to the synagogue and every time you were going to worship God, you read of, of the times when it says the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Habakkuk. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And as a Jew, you're longing to hear the word of the Lord. You're wondering why has it been for the last 400 years that we have not heard the word of the Lord? Why do we have to go to the synagogue and hear about what he used to do? Why can't we hear him now? According to Luke, finally it happened. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John was in the wilderness, which was a dry, barren place for the most part, alone, preparing for what God had called him to do, had even set aside from his mother's womb that he should do. And the word of God comes to him. And when the word of God comes to him, he is filled and cannot hold back. I love that verse from the Old Testament where it talks about the prophet saying, I, I wanted to close up the word of God. I wanted to close my mouth and never utter it again. But it was like a fire inside me and I couldn't hold back and I had to proclaim the word of God. John as God's spirit overshadow him, and he has that moment where he realizes this is the word of the Lord. I must go and proclaim it. So what does he do? In verse 3, he went out of the wilderness into all the regions around the Jordan preaching. He didn't hold it in. He didn't hold back. He took the word of the Lord that God had given to him, and he proclaimed it faithfully. He was not a derelict in his duties. He was faithful in his responsibilities to proclaim the word of the Lord. And what was that word? Other, the other Gospels, and we'll read it momentarily when we get to it later in another sermon. His proclamation was to repent. Repent. Turn. He went to the regions preaching a baptism of repentance. And here's where we start to get a little sticky. Because some of church history and some of the historical church has viewed these verses in a way that I don't think are helpful. We could read those verses, in verse, in, particularly in verse 3, 
where it says that John went preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, and read into that that John's baptism, the act of baptizing itself, is doing that. That is to say that John goes to a river, he calls the people to come to him, and he says to them, come into the water with me, and I will plunge you into the waters that will wash away your sins and raise you back up, and you'll be once again restored, and you will have repented of your sins and received the forgiveness of your sins, and your sins have literally been through the waters of this baptism washed away. There are certain people and theological systems that allow for that. That the, the baptism itself is a, an act that communicates grace to somebody in which they are washing away sins. The Catholic Church obviously being the preeminent one in my mind where they genuinely believe that when you are baptizing, you are actually washing away the sins. It's, an act, it's a theological act that is happening to the person. In fact, there's this one picture I saw once on Twitter there was this Catholic priest who had just baptized a toddler. And the caption for the picture was this priest standing there in his, in his garments, and he had just baptized this girl. And he, in the caption, he says, I just baptized her for the remission of her sins. That is to say, for the washing away of her original sin. She no longer has original sin, Adam's guilt. And in the picture the little girl was like screaming her head off. And I just thought it was completely ironic. If you believe that the water is actually removing her sin, why is she all of a sudden two seconds later sinning? There seems to be something that doesn't match there. There's so some people might read that John is doing that, that John is taking baptism as an actual act of removing the sin of somebody. But that's not what he's doing here. John is preaching and proclaiming to the people, repent. In fact, he's going to say in other Gospels, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And every person who hears him knows exactly what he's saying. They're not confused. They're not saying, okay, uh, hold up, John. Are you saying that I'm supposed to have a turn of my heart and mind toward God? Or are you, am I, are you saying that I need to go into the water so you can baptize me and then that's kind of like my repentance and it, the water washes away my sin? They weren't confused. They knew what he was saying. He was proclaiming what all the prophets of the past had proclaimed to the Jewish people before. You have in your Old Testament Torah promises from God. Promises of blessing if you obey and promises of cursing if you refuse. Repent because you have been cursed. You have experienced the judgment of God repeatedly. And if you repent, you will be restored and blessed. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They knew what his repentance was. So his baptism of repentance was really a baptism that was, was a result of the repentance. They were repenting. They were shedding away. They were saying, I will no longer cling to my sins. I will walk away from my sins. And he was saying, then let's show the world. Let's baptize you. Let's demonstrate to the world your identity of, in a picture of what has happened to you inside. That you are walking away from your sin and turning to God. Did John understand the significance of what Jesus would do dying on a cross. No, John would not have seen that. 
John was beheaded before Jesus died on the cross. So he didn't know ultimately how it was going to work out that Jesus would save his people from their sins. But he knew. And he was preparing the way for that one. When Luke quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, he talks about the fact that all flesh, verse 6, shall see the salvation of God. John is not just proclaiming, by your own willpower, turn away from your sin to God. John is saying, I am coming to you, proclaiming that you repent because there's a king who's coming, and that king is the one to whom you must turn. His shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and even touch. I'm not worthy to unloose them. That is how majestic, how wonderful this coming king is. Repent, prepare your heart, and look for your king. Look to your king. So his ministry ultimately was to prepare people, to prepare the way for the Lord. When he talks about in verses 4 and 5 about preparing the way of the Lord, this was something that was, was not unusual in his day. That when a dignitary or when a king was going somewhere, obviously the roads back then were not exactly the way we have them today. We get upset when we have to cross the line into Michigan because you can literally feel the difference in the road. It was very much, I don't know if I should say that. (laughs) It was very much a different world back then. You were traveling on different roads. The roads were not smooth, and so if the king wanted to have a way that was smooth and not bumpy and crazy as he's, as he's traveling, he would send people ahead of him who would be picking up the stones and moving them out of the way and filling in the potholes and doing everything they could to make the road straight and smooth. So when John is, or excuse me, when Luke is quoting from verses 4 and 5 here from Isaiah chapter 40, He's talking about the fact that there is somebody who had to come before the Messiah came who was preparing the way, making the, the, the way level and straight. And so his coming, number three, was prophetic. John was not somebody that happened out of, in a vacuum. John is somebody who was promised long ago to come as the precursor to the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet says that all of this is done so that God would be glorified. This is something that John wanted to do. In fact, he would say this to his disciples, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. His whole goal of life was not to make himself look good. In some ways, his whole goal was to work himself out of his job. To proclaim Jesus until John needed to be out of the way, and John was out of the way. And in God's providential time, of course, we know John was beheaded while he was in prison. But I don't know that John was upset at all about any of that. Because he knew that his role was not to take the glory from the king. His role was to increase the glory of the coming king, to proclaim the king before all peoples so that the eyes of even his closest disciples would turn from him to Jesus. 
And all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is what Luke does for Theophilus as he says, this John is not some random guy in camel's hair eating locusts and wild honey. He's not some weirdo. He was prophesied in the Old Testament long ago. He is the one whom God said would be the prophet to come prepare the way for for the Lord. And that really was the, the result. The result was purposeful. John came in accordance with the prophecy of God for this end, for this purpose, verse 6, so that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's role was to point people where they could find salvation for their souls. And that's what he did. When Jesus one day walks by and and John is there with his disciples, what does he proclaim? But behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One last thing I'll note there in verse 6. He says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Theophilus is likely a Gentile. In fact, I think we can make a good case that he's a Gentile. The Jewish people were very arrogant because they had the promise of their Messiah, but the Gentiles didn't seemingly. But that wasn't because God hadn't said they wouldn't. God had made it clear in the Old Testament that the Messiah was not just for the Jewish people, but that the Messiah would bring salvation to all peoples. And here is a quote from the Old Testament that Luke gives. And Luke's, it's almost like Luke is nudging Theophilus and says, Theophilus, those Jewish people who are saying that the Messiah only came for them, they aren't even looking at their own Bible. Let me quote to you from the famous passage that talks about John. And what does he say? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's not just the Jewish people who would see the salvation of God. It was the Gentiles too. All people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, everybody would see the salvation of God. Theophilus, you don't have to listen to anybody who tells you the Messiah is only for the Jews. The Messiah came to be the Savior of all men, without distinction, Jews and Gentiles. So John was the one sent to be the herald to proclaim the way of the Messiah. How much more ought we to be in some ways like a John the Baptist? Obviously, Jesus has already come at his first advent, but there's another coming. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes again, will he find his bride ready? Will he find his bride doing what she is supposed to do? To go and proclaim the salvation of of Jesus Christ to all peoples without distinction. Are we ones in this wilderness of life, the voices preparing the way for the second coming of the Lord? Are we the voices like John preaching that people must repent and turn from their sins? Are we the people who are pointing all flesh to see the salvation of God in Jesus Christ? Are we doing that? 
Are we being the people that God has called us to be, to proclaim the way of the king, to make straight the paths of our God? John also, his whole emphasis was to glorify Jesus Christ, to exalt Jesus Christ. Is that what we're doing? Does our service here at Calvary reflect that? I loved the song right before the message because it was exalting, it was boasting, and it was lifting up Jesus Christ. It was pointing out the deep, rich theological truths found in Scripture that are rooted in Jesus. All of those things they sang about, all of the things we sung about in the service this morning, all of the things that the choir sang about, all the things that we're talking about even as we read the Holy Scriptures are all meant ultimately to remind us of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preached in chapel to the Heritage Christian School students, and I preached to them, well, I really shared with them, my life verse. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, which says, Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't think that should just be Rodney King's life verse. I don't think that should be just Paul the Apostle's life verse. I think that should be every Christian's life verse. That your life is consumed with proclaiming and knowing and exalting Jesus Christ. That's why we gather together. That's why we're called Christians for Pete's sake. We're proclaiming Christ. We're living Christ. We're clinging to Christ so that when we fear, we turn to Christ. So that when we are weary, we turn to Christ. So that when we find joy, we turn and thank Christ for giving us a joy that's full. When we are discouraged, you turn to Christ. And when you see somebody else weary or tired or discouraged, you point them to Christ. That's what John did. His life was determined to know nothing amongst those people that he was talking and preaching to except Jesus Christ. He was pointing the way to Christ. And that is what we should be doing too. Pointing everybody in our workplace through the way we live. We can point to Christ by just the fact that he has, he has changed us. Your life is completely transformed when you have him. And your life will, will demonstrate that. But point to Christ in your workplace, in your home, to your children. When you pray at night with your kids before bed, pray for the salvation of their souls. Pray that their eyes would be open to see the beauty and sweetness of Christ. Pray for your grandchildren that they might know and taste and see that the Lord is good and that God has given to us salvation in Christ. That was John's purpose. His purpose was to point to Christ. So all these realities surrounding the prophet ultimately are pointing to Jesus. Because even though John was a significant figure and Luke is recording everything about him, his timing was providential. He had a specific time frame that he came in. He was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah he was prophesied in the Old Testament of his coming. And the purpose for which he came was to point people to the salvation of God. All of that is because of Jesus Christ. And he is the one to whom we thank even this day 
For he died on the cross, according to the scriptures, was dead and buried, according to the scriptures, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, so that we might have life. When we come to the Lord's table, we come as a people prepared to praise and exalt and lift up Christ. May we do that even as we go to this Lord's table now. Let's bow our heads together. And as I pray, I'll ask the gentlemen who are helping with the Lord's table to come forward. And after I pray, I'll ask our musician to play so that we can, like John, focus on Christ and praise and thank him for what he has done in giving to us salvation for our souls. Lord, we thank you for giving to us your servant, John. And as powerful of a preacher as he was, and the fact that he had disciples who were following him demonstrates that he was a powerful preacher and influence in his time. Nevertheless, his life was consumed with pointing towards the Messiah. He was a herald preparing the way for the coming of the king. Now we are your people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you have come that you have risen from the dead to give to us everlasting life and have now tasked us with proclaiming that gospel message till he comes. Lord, help our hearts and minds to be consumed with Christ. Help us to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And even as we pray now in these quiet moments, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy. And even as was sung earlier, may our boast alone be Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.